0: Welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast exploring sex, relationships, and liberation. I'm your host, Nicole. On today's episode, we have psychedelic psychotherapist, Danielle Herrera. Join us for a conversation about redirecting the arrow. Together, we talk about the healing power of community, emptying the channel, and a world beyond the DSM. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Modern Anarchy. I am so happy to have you in the Space Dear Listener and to be back with you after taking a week off. Happy New Year 2024. I have so many exciting episodes that I am excited to share with you this year and to grow with you and to keep expanding in this space. So, thank you for joining me on this journey and for building community in this space with me and Did anyone catch the new intro? Did anyone catch that? It's a little different, right? It's a little different. I think that the podcast is taking direction in a certain area as I continue to explore and research and build my areas of expertise in sex and relationships. And so I wanted to change the intro to have more of that direction. And in terms of my intention with this podcast, right, I do want to say that Relationships are so expansive, right? We are not just talking about romantic or sexual relationships and however you choose to find those or don't have those boxes. All of my relationship anarchists out there, I see you, I am you, we are here. Um, But, you know, there's just so much more than that type of relationship, So when I say sex, relationships, and liberation, I'm talking about our relationships to our ecology. I'm talking about our relationship to drugs. I'm talking about our relationship to the divine and spirituality, right? All of these pieces are part of the relationships that shape our reality. And so today's conversation with Danielle is a powerful one to start off 2024 with. It brings me such joy to be researching psychology and pleasure, and the more I dive into this, I'm continually hit with the reality of how relationships create our experience of this world, create our personality, our tendencies... And so today's conversation talks about that relational perspective to our lives and a lot about the field of psychology in general. So I hope you enjoy that exploration. One of the beautiful things about relationships is the way that they change us, right? You hold that story of that person in your head right? You know me as the host of modern anarchy and I exist in a meta relationship up in your head somewhere, right? Your family exists up there, your mentors, your teachers, your healers, all those people exist up in our head to create the reality. And there's so much beauty in telling our stories with other people and co-creating them together, right? Again, narrative therapy, we are always writing our narrative through connection with other people and through our experiences. And, you know, I've talked on this podcast about how relationships are mirrors, right? The things that make you upset are often the things that we don't like about ourselves or struggle to accept within ourselves. And so we can learn so much about ourselves by having that curiosity when we move through the world and notice how we're affected by other people but relationships aren't only mirrors right they're also windows where we're creating dreams and worlds together or maybe we want to call them a canvas right we're writing that narrative that story in our connection in our relationship And I don't think there's anything more beautiful than that. There's nothing more psychedelic than that, right? Changing the reality of our world. Bring a new relationship into your world and see how that shifts everything, right? I think we've all experienced that phenomenon of how a new person into your world, as you start to hold their stories and their nuances, right? It shapes you and it changes you. And how beautiful, right? And so today, as you're listening to this podcast, you're going to hear a lot of Danielle's story and why she is so passionate about harm reduction in her work. And dear listener, maybe you have a similar story to Danielle's. Maybe you know someone who struggled with some of the same things. And so it makes sense that as you're listening to this episode, it might bring up a lot about your own family dynamics about your own experiences with these topics. And so as per always, you know, I talk a lot about our somatic experience. Continue to tune in with yourself, right? Notice as you're hearing these stories, do you start to feel a tightness in the chest? Do you start to feel some movement in the belly? And can you just bring some curiosity to the way that hearing other people's stories moves your body, what do you notice? What do you need? What do you want to give to yourself or ask for support from others? And that is a practice that I'm continuing to learn and get better at and I know we can all continue to expand in the space together. Dear listener, it is 2024. Let's take a deep breath into this new year. I hope this year can be one of power, pleasure, and radical intimacy in ways you could have never imagined possible, and I am excited to go on this journey with you. I'm sending you all of my love, and with that, let's tune in to today's episode. So then the first question I like to ask each guest is, how
1: would you introduce
0: yourself to the listeners?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll introduce myself the way that I train a lot of people to introduce themselves this way, um, really specifically in the, um, in the topic of like decolonizing therapy. So when I do this training, it's called decolonizing psychedelic therapy specifically, mm-hmm. but it can be applied to any type of psychotherapy. And we'll start off with decolonized introductions the reason why we do this like preparing cuz i wouldn't always prepared yeah. is just that typically when we do introduce ourselves we say something like hi my name is Danielle i um i'm a licensed marriage and family therapist i'm a psychotherapist i went to ucla and then i went to university of southern Cal- or to the university of san francisco and then i um i affiliated with this organization affiliated with that organization and these are the letters after my last name. And it's just so dry and it's so um, disconnected from our relationships and reconnected to our institutions mm-hmm. and, to our, and to our value um, <laughs> based off of that. And I, I just think there's another way. I think that if, if we're trying to reanimate the world, then we need to go back into our relationship. Mm-hmm. So all to say, I'm Danielle. I am a daughter. I am a, um, a sister. I am an auntie. Being an auntie is probably my favorite role right now. I have a nephew who's five years old and my brother's trying for another. So that's very exciting. I have uh, two siblings, <clears throat> an older brother and a younger brother. And my I'm the daughter of uh, Lisa, who is of Filipino and Chiricahua Apache lineage. And I'm the daughter of John Herrera, who is the... Um, The child of a Pasquia Yaki lineage. So I I mean, lots of other things. There's, I care a lot about lineage. I care a lot about, about like generations and, Mm -hmm. and um, shifting sort of paradigms within family systems. Other things about me, or just like I'll usually name like like roles too, or like mm-hmm. different uh, personality structures that I identify with. So I'm mm-hmm. a seven on the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. I'm a Gemini, but I really identify with my Scorpio stellium, mm-hmm. and, or I identify with my ninth house stellium or my Cancer Venus, actually, that's not a big one. And what are some other things? I'm a poet. I'm an initiated Inayati universalist Sufi. Um, which really informs how I do a lot in my life. Um, I'm a partner and a lover, a capital L lover. And mm-hmm. the way that loving shows up mostly day to day for me is as a psychotherapist. So that's where <laughs> the connection happens. And so I, I get to say this thing that I love, which is I love people for a living. And how that's taken form the most is as is within harm reduction in psychedelic psychotherapy. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, So that's me. (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you for sharing all of that. You definitely mm-hmm. inspired me when I had talked to you earlier in the year and heard that frame when um, applying to internship, we have to answer these like 500 word essays. And one of them is, please tell me about yourself. So I definitely try to use that same frame to like put me in relationship. We'll see if that gets me a spot somewhere, freak some people out. You know what I mean? We got dinosaurs <laughs> in the field.
1: <laughs> no, <probably.
0: laughs> yeah. But thank you for sharing all of that. And I'm so excited to hold space for your story today. And if you want to take the listeners, you know, all the way back, wherever that starts for you and the journey coming into the work that you're doing and the love that you're sharing with the world.
1: Wow. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's, it's fun. It's a fun question because I've told the story many times and I have nothing prepared. So we're just going to let consciousness take Take privacy here. Yeah.
0: And I'm sure it changes, right? Like in our lives, the more we like grow and get perspective and look back on those stories, like you'll say it today. And then in 10 years, be like, Oh, but
1: this, you know, well, that's, what's so exciting about it is that, you know, I was recently thinking like, I've been seeing my therapist for like six or seven years now. And I'm like, Ooh, I'm wondering if it's time to like see another therapist and like switch that out. And the question is always like, how do I start my story over again? Like Mm -hmm. she's gathered so much information about me. And she even said, like, if you needed to do that, like, one of the cool things is that when you, like, start up again and tell your story, you tell it differently, Mm -hmm. you know? So I'm curious. I haven't, like, told my story in a while. (laughs) So let's Uh, see what shows up. Yes. Um, Which take you back to the beginning. So I was born in. Southern California. Grew up in a in a small town on Tongva land called uh, San Pedro, California, and it's basically the port of Los Angeles. If you take mm-hmm. the one ten freeway all the way down, then you get to this small fisherman's town,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it's homey and beautiful, and it struggles. It's neighbors with a lot of like South LA kind of you know like it's like Long Beach, Compton, Wilmington, Inglewood. I was born to a single mother. Mm. My mother's name is Lisa. And she, I guess, I guess actually what I'll say is like the birth itself is actually like pretty significant. So when I was born, I really have done a lot of work around like the original sort of like birth trauma that's happened to me, which was that I was born premature due to physical abuse on my mother Mm. by my father. Wow. And that like, was pretty felt, and the story was given to me very young.
0: Mm.
1: My mother, you know, and and she was, like, in recovery, ex-alcoholic, and then my biological father, um, who didn't raise me, but I had, like, seen a, k- a couple times throughout my childhood, was an active heroin user, and I had an older brother, so when I was born, it was really just me and my mother and my older brother, and it was like that for like two, three years before my mother met my stepfather who was like in my life consistently after that. So I got to have that experience, but I was also like pretty distant because I mean, active trauma on my mom's side was ultimately needing, she needed me to not have that connection to my, to my, uh, stepfather. So, but all things considered things were really beautiful. My mother was like definitely primary caregiver for me. We were pretty poor, she she like worked various jobs um until eventually kind of being like a secretary at my elementary school, which was mm-hmm. kind of sweet. Um, she's beautiful. She's mm-hmm. always been absolutely like gorgeous. And then, you know, I I with my biological father, there was a lot of like custody battle stuff. He never paid a single dollar in in childcare, in in um, in uh yeah, yeah, didn't like in in what is it called? Like Child, al- support. Yeah, Alibo, yeah. child support. Yeah, Alamo, child support and Alamo. Yeah. He never paid anything. My parents never even got married, but I, I, I'm naming that now because I just had to do my student loans. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, oh my God, I owe $1,000 a month on my student loans. And it's like, where's my father's child support? <laughs> 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 yeah. But anyway. so- My mother raised me mostly. She ends up like working at my elementary school. Things are pretty good. All things considered, even though we're like struggling, like family for the first like five years of my life, I'm very lucky in the sense that um, my mother's always been like really warm. She's very much so like has like a lot of unprocessed trauma. So Mm -hmm. she would raise me in this very fearful environment specifically around like a projection of childhood sexual abuse because of her own. So it's really complex. Like my therapist always considers like, she's like, okay, well, you've got like a really high ACE score, right? The like adverse childhood experiences. And she's like, but the one that kind of like, is like the strongest for you is actually this like really complicated overlay of sexual trauma because of the like over-sexualization fear that happened because my mother was, it happened to her. Ah. So she was like really, really like high, like kind of obsessed because she was like really obsessed with like protecting me and my older brother and less actually less so protecting, but rather assuming that we were being sexually abused and then convincing, like telling us that we were lying if it didn't wow. happen. So there would be this like really complicated place where like, you know, my, my older brother and I even talk about it to this day where we would like, you know, this is like just generational trauma stuff that it's like, I think it's so important to process where it's like, even to this day, my brother and I will be like, we used to both pray that it would happen to us because she would every single day ask like, who's, who's doing it? Is your uncle? Is it your cousins? Like, is somebody doing it to you? And we're just like, no, nothing was happening. It was just like, she would like even very inappropriately tell us of all the ways that like somebody could do this to you. But anyways, it was very complicated, but we like loved her so much. And like, like, even at a young age could tell that it was just like a projective, like unprocessed trauma thing, but still such a loving person. Mm. And things were pretty great, especially then my stepdad came into the picture and he started taking care of us, which was really nice and had like a positive elementary school experience. And then when things really started shifting was when um, this was like around middle school. So it was like I think I was like 10 or 11, I noticed a profound shift in my mother's connection to me. Before that age, we were like close, probably like too close, if anything, like inappropriately close because of my mom's stuff. And, but then all of a sudden she like disappeared, you know, Mm -hmm. emotionally, like she was just extremely distant to me. And we started having a bunch of financial problems and I noticed, I noticed she was getting like profoundly paranoid. She, and this, so, so when I was around like eleven, she started getting really like it was uh, like a severe paranoia. Those sort of like early childhood sexual fears became like active, almost like conspiracy theories of who was doing it, mm-hmm. and they were like really next level. So I was like trying to make sense of like what was happening for her, which prompted me to like study psychology at like eleven years old because I was like, oh, my mom's mentally ill that was like what made sense to me. Yeah. Um, and so like, then I think it was like 11, 12, when I like first read like a psych 101 textbook to try to make sense wow. of, like, oh, my mom must have like schizophrenia. Cause it would be, the symptoms were really like, you know, we couldn't talk in the car because the radio was listening. Or like when we were in the house, she would put tape over any of the like old nail holes because she thought that like people were spying on her, especially like pedophiles you know um she started like accusing she would like take the phone numbers from my dad's um uh, my stepdad's like phone records and then scramble the numbers and then show us like try like sit us down and be like I'm not crazy this is proof that your dad is cheating on me or that he's doing these things um and it was like every single day non-stop extreme paranoia mm. and I never thought it would be drugs I never thought like, cause she was actually extremely anti-drug because she was an ex-alcoholic and because my biological father was a heroin user. Uh, like, very much so like I would never, you know? Yeah. Um, so I just thought organically it, 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 it was just paranoid schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Lived that way for many years. And the more intense part of those many years is that we went through um, severe housing instability and homelessness from the age of 12 years old until I was an adult 19. Oh. And that it's sort of it's the housing market crash that occurred in 2008. My family lost their home. We like they were we were like completely pushed out. And then after that, we lived in motels and hotels and various like housing facilities sometimes we would rent a place but then we would get evicted Mm -hmm. and then we would get locked out of our home and then we would lose all our stuff and then Mm -hmm. my parents would steal u-haul trucks and then keep all our stuff in there and then we lose that and then they would get storage units and then we couldn't afford that so we so I have nothing from my childhood wow I have like nothing no Mm -hmm. picture you know Mm -hmm. um and the, the the instability was was severe like it was it was it was impossible. I was staying when I was housed, I was in motel rooms with my it was a single motel room with two beds. My mother and but and and my mother and stepfather would sleep in one bed, and then my brothers and I would sleep in another bed. Mm-hmm. So we got very close and I I learned how to be extremely relational. Yeah. And ultimately what it what turned out to be was that okay, fast forwarding, there's a lot of that kind of same shaping, lots of chaos. And when I was about 18 years old and I had like social workers coming in and out of my life, my whole life. Mm. But then, um, at some point I was like, this is like, they're not doing anything. Yeah. And I, like, this isn't, why am I not getting help here? And so when I was about 17, I was like an A plus student, 4.6 GPA, like hustling. Yeah. Classic case of like, <laughs> you know, um, and I was doing it because I was like, I need to change something you know like somebody has to do something really different here so I knew I had to go to like college and try to like change the wheel of the family system I had a little brother who was like very severely neglected was Mm. mostly taking care of him and when I was 17 I was like I'm about to leave for school and I need to like make sure that they're taken care of so I got child protective services involved in my own family Mm. at this point around that time my mother was sleeping for spans of like four days to a week and just would just be under the covers the entire time or she would be up and somewhere else extremely suicidal she mm-hmm. attempted multiple times very violently and was just like like very borderline qualities what we would kind of call it really just extremely unpro- unprocessed trauma mm-hmm. and then at 17 having this social worker who was finally like I just need to catch your parents off guard and test them for drugs, mm. them for drugs and found out that they were, I'll quote my social worker here, which was when she tested my mother, she's my social worker said, this is the highest amount of methamphetamine I've ever seen in a human body. Oh. I'm like that. <laughs> so that was, and it was brutal for me, right? Like um. the moment I found out, I fell to my knees physically and again, was about to leave for college. And I was like, well, now what? What did I just do? Because now the system knows that my mom, my parents are on drugs. And yeah. now, and I have a little brother who's under their care. <laughs> and I got accepted to Berkeley and UCLA. I was trying to decide where I was going to go. And so a social worker took me to my parents' house. Um, where they're like renting from like an old military friend of my stepdad's. And it was like a terrible experience because they, they like used me to get my parents home. The cops did, you know, they were like, we need to like get your parents to be here. So, and I was like, again, like a teenager, I don't really know what was happening. They took me to my little brother's elementary school to pick him up. And I had to just like console him and be like, okay, I don't really know what's going on, but we got to take you. And it was to arrest my parents um, and remove custody of my little brother. Wow. And brutal, but also, you know, I think one, one point that I missed was that like when I had called, when I had first gotten the social worker, it was like really helpful because they mandated that my entire family go to therapy. And so I started going to therapy when I was like 14, 15 years old and my little brother did too. So that was like huge. And it was paid by the state because it was required. And then my parents, my mom started going a little bit too, but that was like a way to get resources. And then it was like when they found out about the truth, they were like, "Oh, we actually can't have this child in your care at all." So they remove custody. They, uh, my little brother, enters the foster care system. I just age out, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which was like the timing was like impeccably terrible because if it just would have happened before, wouldn't be paying a thousand dollars in student loans every month. You know. Also, just a note here is I wouldn't be paying a thousand dollars in student loans every month if I wasn't a first generation student who didn't know that i could just put down my homeless heroin using biological father on my applications and instead use the gross income of my stepdad who never adopted me (laughs) so it's like basically i'm just this like outlier situation but this is is a side note Mm -hmm. Um, but anyways so that happened that was like probably like the big the big burst for us um and then i processed the like what does this all mean went to college. I chose UCLA because I, now that my brother was in the foster care system, I would now want to be able to be close to him. So every weekend down uh, and came to see him. Eventually they moved him to care underneath my uh, uncle and my parents went to rehab. My mother went into inpatient and then my father, my stepdad went into outpatient. And just to fast forward here, basically the journey through college for me and through this time of my family's life, was just like actively refusing to separate from them, like actively refusing to reject them, despite how often people told me, "Your parents are toxic. They're, you know, you don't need them in your life. Just give them up. You mm-hmm. know, just just completely abandon them." And I was like, "Give me a better reason than the fact that they're using drugs." My mother is kind to me. She's warm to me. She loves me. My stepfather yeah. is. is His taking care of me since I was a child. I'm this little brown kid. My older brother's this little brown kid. What he doesn't, he doesn't like give me a better reason.
0: Right.
1: Like there's, they're clearly doing this for like, it's for a reason. And I couldn't comprehend it. Every single person in my family told me just leave her, Mm -hmm. like let her her die in the gutter if that's what she wants to do. And I just can't do that. So I, I called her in rehab. I like, I, I used some of my scholarship money when I like went to UCLA. I like, m- I made like $19,000 from writing essays. I was really good at that. She didn't have the money for her rehab. So I mm. paid it, you know? Mm. And it's like, okay, like I can't, and, and maybe it's to a fault, but like my connection to lineage is just so loud. I'm yeah. like, this is my blood. Like how, <laughs> and it, it's something that's interesting in like modern therapy because there is so much of this, like just just leave your people you know um so I just trusted I trusted love very early on very very early on and she's you know just to yeah and fast forwarding here is that like she's great she did great she Mm -hmm. she held my hand when she first came back from rehab Mm -hmm. and she like tightly and she said um she's like Danielle I need you to know that you did this you know you saved my life oh like you saved my life. And then she also said like, you know, she processed so much. She had to do so much therapy. And she was like, like when she started talking to me openly about what it was like when she was using drugs for so long, she told me like, I was having a spiritual experience the like when I first started using and it was so gorgeous. It was mm. so beautiful. Like I, I, I felt God speaking to me directly, wow. full ecstatic experience, yeah, spiritual emergence. Right. And she was like, I was like, but I, I wanted to talk to somebody about it so bad, but I knew that if I told them that I was like having this spiritual experience and drugs, the meth was involved that they, they wouldn't understand. They would judge me. They would say, what kind of mother, you know? Mm-hmm. And so she's like, if I just had one person who held space, like who, who could, handle the fact that those things were existing at once this wouldn't have happened yeah Not like that and that was it for me I was like mm-hmm. okay great I'd like that I I need to be that one person yeah you know so well, went through college was actively in like a trauma response too yeah of course, right? of course. Like, it was, like, all of that life was just like it's like a really fuzzy period for me because mm-hmm how much PTSD was like just setting. in? I got diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Of course, in that time, really, I started therapy there because I was having panic attacks. Like I wouldn't, UCLA was not a good container for me. Mm-hmm. I lost my housing in school because I couldn't afford it. Um, ah. So I was a homeless student too. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, doing this. I was like sleeping in the car, but I was like very like wise about how I got taken care of I was like learned you know so I was like okay then I'll just become the director of this mental health organization that helps people prevent suicide and then they're like here's an office with a key that you can use so I slept in there
0: smart wise yeah
1: <laughs> right right um, so it was like all these ways of just like you know I just I it's, it's it is really cool to retell the story because I'm mm-hmm. like I didn't even consider just like how much and nobody knew this was happening I would just go oh. with a bunch of rich things you know yeah. Uh, I started counseling very early. So like my first job was like as a like peer counselor, mostly for folks who were like working with gender and sexuality issues and like students who were like low income. And then from that point on, it was just various counseling roles. And I knew I needed to become a therapist. I thought maybe I would become like a child therapist because I was like, how can I impact, basically be what my mother needed when she was a child, you know? Yeah, yep. Went straight to grad school you know my memory of like the only stable people i'd ever met in my childhood were all social workers and therapists mm. you know mm. they had a huge impact on me they was yeah. i when I met one i was like wait it can be like this they're so like gentle and so like attuned and so went to grad school and it was in grad school that i had one of my first psychedelic experiences mm. and i had had like minor psychedelic experiences when i was in high school but nothing too significant It was when I did an underground MDMA therapy session um, at the beginning of grad school. And there, I felt like my trauma opened up into like a 360 perspective. And I finally forgave my biological father. Um, And I like just fully felt into like, yeah, just like my own, like into love. And then I was like, I need to do this. I have to specifically work with drug users. And I have to specifically work with drugs, full spectrum. Those who don't know what they're doing completely have a, have a chaotic relationship and those who are doing this for like expansiveness, healing, spiritual emergence. So that would be the realm that I work. So that's how we got here. (laughs) Uh, Basically after that went to like, was working at harm reduction therapy center. It felt like home. Mm-hmm. you know, I was like working on the street with like active drug users and homeless folks and in and, and stably house people. And it was like being back home. Like it was like, just, it was just easy for me, natural. I never learned how to do it mm. and then started doing like psychedelic therapy, training for ketamine therapy. And I'm now in private practice doing both of those things. And it's, it's been really cool. So, yeah, for <laughs> asking, that was a long story. But... Of course, thank
0: you for sharing it with me and all of the listeners, and mm-hmm. for trusting that. Yeah, the space to share that. So, thank mm-hmm. you. I think yeah. first, I just want to like pause and hold space for like you know the journey that you've gone through and telling the story
1: now. Like, how does it feel to look back on that part, that whole history? Yeah. Good question. I mean, I'm like, oh, it makes me so teary. Cause I'm like, I'm like, yeah, it's like, nice to get to a point where I'm like, I'm so proud of her, you know? Like, God,
0: mm-hmm. I
1: was, like, how much she went through.
0: Yeah. Your mom.
1: I'm actually like referring to me. Yeah. You that's know? what I
0: was hoping you were referring to <laughs> you. Yeah.
1: But I was like, okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting to retell the story because I'm like, for so long, it was just about my mom. I was like obsessively focused on like, oh my God, I got to take care of this woman, you know? But now it's like gone to the own, like it's been 15 years of therapy for me. And like, I'm finally in this place where I'm like, wow, the intelligence of that young person, you know, to just like shape, yeah, just shape life towards like, no, like this, There's just this part of me that just like demands something different, you know? (laughs) Like, it's just wild. Yeah. Yeah. And I love my life. That's what's, it's, i'm so in love with my life mm. you know yeah work. <laughs>
0: it's a long journey to get there and such a testament to your strength right mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. yeah good journey <laughs>
0: yeah and now you have such a important mm. perspective that a lot of people don't have that we need in the world
1: yeah i i named that a lot because i'm like I mean, it's 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 interesting to me because I'm like, for me, it's like, well, yeah, duh, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I I realize I I don't realize until like for example, like you reach out to me, you're like, oh, like, can you join, like, jump on the podcast? Let's talk about it. And I like I get these like reminders that it's something unique, these reminders that it's a, a, like you said, like an, an important or a different perspective all the time. Mm. And I'm like, why? And then I'm like, oh. it's like sobering for me where I'm like, oh yeah, I've like gathered something from this journey that, you know, Mm -hmm. so I'm, yeah, I'm like interested, like in like how, what do I do with it now? You know, Mm -hmm. it's informed so much of like how I practice and like so much of my philosophy. I'm like, I'm really grateful for that.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you think like the biggest pieces are that you'd want to share in this space in terms of like compared to the more quote unquote normative model of psychology or what I'm being taught in school, what I
1: see with my colleagues, like what are the big discrepancies that you see? Totally. That's a good, good way of putting it. Big discrepancies that I see in the way that I work. I'm like, I, you know, every single time I see a client or I start with a new client, I tell them like, okay, so the way that I work is very (laughs) non-traditional. And I'm just like dropping them into like, do you know what you're getting yourself into? (laughs) And there's like, there's ways in which okay, so those big discrepancies is like, and I'll name it. I'm like, I, I actively utilize a decolonial framework within psychotherapy, and I'll you know through time sort of teach them what that means. But like a big way, a big thing that that means is like, you know, constantly, constantly recalibrating into the impact of colonialism, capitalism, and white supremacy. And then all the other isms that are attached to that, that like are, that come from that. So it's like the image that I always give them is like, you're going to come sit across from me and you're going to be pointing this arrow towards yourself. To hold your own heart. And you're going to be saying like, this is my fucking fault. Sorry. No, pass <laughs> on this space fault. is welcomed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to be like, this is like, I'm, I'm, I'm the problem. Like I'm failing to adjust. There's something wrong with me. And my job is to like help you zoom out so that you can see that like, wait, a wait, there's nothing wrong with you. Like this is, this is a, the, the system is a hundred percent calculated and oppressive. It's not broken, right? Taking that arrow towards your own heart, flipping it up at colonialism, capitalism, white supremacy, and then feeling into your own heart and expanding, breathing it open. Right. So like there's where I'm like, it's decolonial. That's like one big framework. And then the other, the heart center, that's Sufism. That's like all my spiritual teachings of like this heart space is so taken for granted. Mm. And the way that we love, loving as an act, you know, loving as like what we do, like Mm. what humans are meant for, and then being in relationship to that. Never really thought about it that way, but that's pretty much what I'm doing. Huge. Huge. (laughs) Huge. It is.
0: It is. Because if I say I love my clients, You know what some supervisor would say to me? We need to work on your uh, counter transference and transference going on. What's going on in this session? So I just threw my pen down. I'm like, you know, like, dare I say I have love for the person sitting across from me? I can't say that you know, and you know, Rogers would always say like the unconditional positive regard of the humanist tradition, you can do unconditional positive regard. It's like,
1: dare we call that love? No. We
0: that
1: love. That's incredible. I love that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a huge, it's, that's a, another one of those big um, pieces for me is that like, I'm so radically unafraid of telling my clients that I love them. Um, and I let them say it first. They always say it. They always say it, fighting it, I'm inviting it into the room. I'm yeah. like I'm I want them to not fear their capacity to love. Mm-hmm. I, I I want them to f- to feel as if their love could save the world. And so I'm inviting that space and connection and if they can say it to me and if if we if we can like acknowledge our like what we've accessed relationally, that intimacy, they're just going to transfer that to all of their people. They yeah. will. That's yeah. why therapy works, right? So yes. So, and, and, and like, just think about that, right? It's like, so you have that decolonial lens and then you have that like loving, hyper loving lens. And it's like, and if therapy really is kind of this like practice, practice ground for like what you then transfer onto other, really other relationships, then right. you have people out in the world who are helping other people not blame themselves, be aware of the systems that are impacting them and be more loving to everybody in their lives. Yeah. Okay. Huge. <laughs> let's, yeah. Let's do that. Totally. Totally. <laughs> yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Yet I don't know if I could do that sort of frame while I'm going through school I know I could at sauna healing Mm -hmm. collective right but when I go (laughs) to internship and I'm in a hospital setting like I don't think I can say that sort of stuff right so it's like and mm-hmm. part of the conditioning of the field is so like professionalism, you know, that tabula rasa of Freud of like, you're supposed to be the blank slate, you know, which is funny because one of my friends was talking about like clowns and why they're so scary. And they're like, apparently there's some sort of research on the, the face and the, you know, the actual makeup, making it like a blank fl- uh, face. So it's so scary. And that's what's terrifying about it. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what psychology has done for years <laughs> to clients
1: of trying to be so blank, you know? <laughs> Oh, wow. That's a... Comparison. I know. I was yeah. like, yeah, that kind
0: of hits me a little hard to think about. But like, I what you're saying is a hundred percent from the practice that I, you know, the relational cultural theory uh, way of looking at it. That you know, the therapeutic relationship becomes a model for all the other relationships, right? What's happening in the room often happens, or what's happening outside of the room is happening in the room, right? And that's why it's also important to acknowledge the potential power structures that are existing in the room as well, right? And then that becomes that model outside. So being able to have that safe space where you could explore what intimacy looks like with the boundaries
1: of a therapeutic relationship is life changing for many people. It's so interesting too. It feels paradoxical to me that there is this more traditional shaping of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis that that does use that blank slate. Like complete non-disclosure like you should not show the therapist should be completely free of any personality really like you can't show don't let them find out that you're a person and then you're teaching them intimacy and then they're gonna go out and not know how to connect because you're not giving them anything Mm -hmm. and it's also just silly because like there's no way you're not disclosing totally Person. you're coming into the you're carrying all over you right and so it's another way where it's like really white too yes it's like maybe that works in whiteness mm-hmm. but like I walk into the room I'm like so racially ambiguous I'm covered in tattoos that <laughs> like they're prayers too they're they're and they're spiritual they're like they're very self-disclosure-y yeah. <laughs> and I chose that I did that on purpose right um And also just my energy, my like person, like how I am, the way that I respond, every single thing that I say is a story. Yeah. So (laughs) positionality,
0: you can't get out of that, right? But if you're, if you fit into the norm, then you quote unquote, potentially can, right? So hence the whiteness of this whole structure, right? It's it's terrifying. (laughs) I remember being in my class and Talking about one of my clients had been talking about their sexual assault journey and healing and they started to cry in session, and I was moved and cried with them in the moment and I shared that in my classroom and like a couple of students were like what you cried. It was particularly one student whose father was a clinical psychologist and so she was just so shocked she was like wow like I had no idea you could do that that's so cool and I'm like.
1: (laughs) That's what I'm saying amazing so here here's this is one of my hot takes my hot my hot takes I went to school with a lot of, oh my god I'm like we're, we're saying this on recording one of my hot takes is uh we need to think about so we've been talking about like generational trauma generational wisdom generational joy yes that all exists but I would encourage the the current like therapy students who have psychologists and therapists parents to just take a deep look at and- <laughs> <laughs> about about what what's not going to work anymore like what needs to be what needs to be evolved here mm-hmm. um because yes those those modalities those those ways of 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 being in relationship are were effective but also like our I mean think about Gen Z think of how much more expansive they are think of what they need they're going to need something different than the way that your father the psychologist did it for his friends you know, Absolutely. and, and we're responsible for, for being in relationship to that evolution, you know, mm-hmm. um, being creative with what it is that is being asked of us. A big part of the decolonizing psychedelic therapy things is kind of funny. Cause it's like, it has this like radical kind of terminology that invites a lot of people who are kind of interested or drawn towards those worlds words. And what it secretly is all about is like, were the modern spiritual healers in hiding. That's really mm-hmm. what it's all about. Is that, you know, like if if you and here I'll give this little thing just to go for it. It is like before there were institutions and before like when we were more of a collectivist society and we were like decolonial like prior to colonization, mm-hmm. um the largest structures within a society would be the temples they would Mm. be the places of spiritual worship like when you thought of the community the ecosystem the the place that was at the center was the spiritual ground where we would come together when institutions academia banks (laughs) businesses came into play now we've got salesforce tower in san francisco that's the largest structure and now like and everywhere you go that's the institution now it's a campus a college campus and we, we yearn for, we grieve for that that spiritual center. And so now that the institutions, the college campuses, the institutions are these centers of a, of a society, the people who are responsible for healing individuals have to fit into those institutions. So then you get doctors and you get like, yeah, then you get psychotherapists and psychologists and psychiatrists. Because it's under like the Western colonial medical model. But then within those people and the people who get drawn to it, I truly believe are coming at it mostly from, from like a soulful place from the right place where they're like, I want to help people. And it's a, it's a spiritual essence to be like, I want to work with people's hearts, you know, but then when you get kind of pulled through what is like our active colonial institutions, that's a lot of toxins. <laughs> yeah. And so all to say, I really do think that like, you know, what, what psychotherapists are doing, you know, these letters after our last name, if you kind of work with that purification of the heart, you're doing spiritual healing work, mm-hmm. you know, and how do we ground into that a little bit more?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Through love and that how powerful, right. To be able to play that role in people's lives and to have that support. I mean, when we lose those spiritual centers, we're so deeply yearning for community that many of us have lost, especially as people have moved and gotten more sporadic, right? Like we're just so craving that community center and, and missing that. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: I think it was hard for me to, to going through like just like you said, yeah, the toxins of the field, right? And when we're thinking about the ways that systems are impacting the therapists, the psychologists who are making these larger diagnoses, it was really hard to go through. Um, In my trauma class, we were talking about different diagnoses, right? And the ways that a lot of diagnoses overlap with trauma, right? And it's kind of this muddied water, the more that we get into diagnoses and we see how much of it overlaps with trauma rather than maybe these discrete boxes of types of diagnosis. And then within that, to notice that, like there were research studies where clinicians were given the same profile of a client with a similar history, but with the child who was Black, they were giving them oppositional um, defiant disorder compared to trauma and the ways that that diagnosis is supposedly reflecting a problem with the child right like the problem is in the child they have a disorder they're oppositional defiant versus hey this white kid with the same background they went through trauma and then the ways that that label goes through the system right any other person who picks that up and then sees that and then puts that so seeing that sort of stuff and like knowing the harm i just it's so gross
1: yeah, I hate it. I hate it so much. I that's another thing that I'll tell my clients when I first see them is like, okay, one, this is really non-traditional. Two, I'm non-pathological. Yeah. I'm like when you want to work with play with diagnoses, we can absolutely talk with it. We're gonna play with it though. Like it's oh, it's yeah. gonna be it's like, we're just going to look at it and get rid re- of it. We're going to do like a critical analysis of what's in here. Okay. And we're going to look at what makes you feel the need to have the label. And of course, I'm going to put it on your chart. If you need it for insurance coverage, blah, 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 blah. Of course, we're going to do that. Cause I have that power. I have that power. Somebody gave me that power, but I will say what the DSM is like, Sophia Strand said, this was like, it's the modern day Malleus Maleficarum, which is the modern day hammer of the witches. The modern day hammer of the witches, right? So it is. It it is. Yeah. It it, it it's one hundred percent a part of the game. It's a hundred percent. It's not broken. It's calculated and oppressive. It yeah. is designed, like you're saying, to specifically oppress some people and position higher others. Mm-hmm. And we know what we know what colonialism wants, right? So for me, it's like having all these BIPOC clients who like, you know, sometimes come to me with different diagnoses. And and I actually am working on, it's like, there's like D prescribers. I'm like D diagnoser. Totally. You know? Let's, let's take this borderline personality disorder thing that you've been carrying around and like change it I'm changing it to PTSD. Pretty much all my clients have PTSD. And I tell my clients if you were to take this, what, how many pages are in the book? Like five, 600, lea, I don't know. Lea, <laughs> lea. <laughs> <Not bad. laughs> so take this, whatever, um, 600 page book. If you were to erase every word in it and just write the word trauma, close it up. It would still be correct. Yeah. <laughs> it's, still correct. it's still correct. There's shapings of trauma. And yes, it's like going to help us move through this. It helps us inform treatment. Yes in a system, it's like, but for that system, like for the system, that's not ultimately designed to treat, it doesn't have an interest in treating you really, you know, it it is a business. (laughs) um, And all of this is so US centric, but you know, it it is true. Needs to
0: be talked about. I have many a therapist following the podcast. So we're speaking to them, right? Trying to create a different paradigm and it's needed. (laughs) It is so needed in my opinion and i mean even if we go back to the history of the dsm right like you know queerness being in the dsm uh, as something yeah. that was pathological uh something to pathologize i remember one of my professors had talked to me about being a, a young clinician in the field and being gay at the time and just having to navigate that reality when he was training of if i share my truth i could be fired you know this is directly in the book of what's wrong and so like yeah, the desire to burn it, obviously, yeah. is so strong, this yeah. sense of who gets to determine what is okay, wrong, who gets to determine reality, truth, right? Like all of those pieces. And so it's mm-hmm. deeply problematic, the ways that this book gets yield against people and the ways that mm-hmm. it impacts their access to care, insurance rates, etc.
1: Like, oof, you know? So icky. It's so icky. And I love that example of your of this person like hearing the like like what it was like for them as a clinician and having knowing that diagnosis was in there. That's that's kind of what I'm saying. It's like a critical lens of like um of like folks whose parents are psychotherapists or psychologists because it's like and for us too, it's like maybe not their parents, but maybe it's like when we position the grandfathers of psychotherapy. When we position the the people who made this field, right? Um, let's just consider their identities for a second. Yeah. <laughs> Name like, them. Picture them in your mind. Just picture <laughs> them in your mind and see what they have in common. But um, <laughs> when we, when we sort of like we have them at the altar, almost. Yeah. Yep. Of like they did this. They did this beautiful, incredible thing, and they did. But also, like, what have we internalized from their philosophies? Right. And so it's like this person, right. It's like, if we, if we just celebrate the like, wow, you made this like incredible modality or methodology, then like, in what way has the homophobia sustained? Has the racism sustained? Like it's, it's still in there. So this is, that's the like, like folks who need to kind of challenge the more traditional lenses that were sort of passed down to them in their like therapy lineage is like, I I'm curious if there's ways in which the way your father is practicing as he has been for 40 years is still carrying that, that really icky diagnosis of like, you are a a sexual deviant. If you're, Mm -hmm. if you're gay, it's way worse than that too, you know? So
0: (laughs) I know, I know the whole King community was in there until DSM four
1: was yeah. Until DSM five actually. So hmm great example which is like why kink is one of the ones where I'm like oh my god are you kidding me it's so good for you thank <laughs> <It's> you, you. <laughs> so good for you it's like it's like kink is and that's like another one a population that I work a lot with is mm-hmm. like the kink community and I'm like wait, wait 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 and it's heart-centered right it's like we found a way to say that this is not healthy for the psyche. Like, wait, wait. it's literally so intelligent and so brilliant. This is just my little quick kink thing. Totally, it's so brilliant to me that, like, we can take our wounds, you know, like, and 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 tra- and say, "I'm going to find pleasure out of this," you know. So it's like it's just it's beautiful. Like that system inside of the body that says, like, you know, and it's not that every kink comes from like a, a wound or harm, of course. Sure but like the amount of times where I do see, you know, it's like, I, I've got a, like a client who like is talking to me about the like humiliation kink, you yeah. know? And I'm like, oh yeah. you Like the, just the relationship from the bullying and the the power that you're, you're then claiming. That's like, I'm going to feel good from this. I'm going to make this good. It's like, oh, I, I am at your feet and respect to you because of that now, you know? Totally. totally. <laughs>
0: yeah. I think that the, uh, what we consider trauma, right? Like if we take that larger scale, like what it's meant for me as a woman to exist in this society, right? That's an, an a trauma in and of itself, right? So I mean, maybe then we, you know, Jeff would say we're meditating the water of like what trauma means. So I don't know, I don't know. But for me, it's it makes sense. Like living under these systems, right? Living under capitalism, these various traumas and being able to play with them, reclaim them, have power over them, right? There are so many different ways that we can do that through play and through kink so absolutely and I think there's also that reality too that like there's chaotic relationships to kink right and like being able to name that too is so important so. I could see how that came from that frame. And it reminds me a lot of like the drug frame, right? Of just like drugs are bad, only chaotic relationships. It's like, kind of like you were saying earlier, right? Like we work with that. And there's people who are also doing it in this. I mean, it's all about connection, really all of it. All of it's always about connection, but there's also like spiritual healing and expansive too. It's not always chaotic, right? Just like, boom, (laughs) (laughs) Boom, psychology,
1: just Jesus, just expand. I love that you like are, you went naturally from the like kink to the, like how this is similar to our relationship with drugs or like harm reduction. Cause that's exactly what I would say is that like, it's not just chaotic. why We can find these, these parts of it that are like really doing it Mm -hmm. in a way that's like so spiritual healing. totally That's where I'm like, I get disappointed in humanity when I'm like, you have the capacity to boom, make this more complex. You have the capacity to expand your your to expand the understanding, the complexity, the nuance of this person, of this situation. You have it. It's kind of like the thing I was saying this to a client the other day, where I was like, "We always say say like you have as many hours in the day as Beyonce. Mm. You no, know? you have as much capacity as name whoever you think has the most depth. Yeah. Uh, the person I'm currently kind of obsessed with is Bio Kumalafe mm. in the like. <laughs> Is uh, in the uh, revolution not be psychologized episode on the emerald right so it's like we all have as much capacity as bio use your tools right and when it comes to people that's our responsibility when it comes to loving that's where we have to be like how can i how can i love them deeper how am i not understanding if i think that this person is just chaotically kinky unhealthy or and or this person is chaotically using drugs like what do I not understand like what's what's going on here and how can I harm reduce like help them reduce the harms associated because maybe they don't know because they don't have any models right it's like if it's rejected and they're told it's just bad guess what's going to keep happening yeah it's going to fester is like those harmful relationships to it but if they have some options of like Okay, here's somebody who's like kinky or using drugs and like is in relationship with it, conscious, Mm -hmm. intentional, you know? And you have a model of how to do this and we can like figure this out. We can fine tune it. So Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly what I said, but. Absolutely. I'm sure you
0: saw the rat park city like model, right? Yeah, just like. At the Center we're always looking for connection we're relational beings right and. And some of us didn't have the privilege of relationships that were secure or emotionally mature right and had to go through that process, I mean. i'm just thinking about what you had said about finding the social workers and just the grounding the love that you got from them, and that being such a huge shift like many of us didn't have that privilege, right? And the ways that that affects us, right? And then when we're working in this world, like searching for deep connection and deep connection, I mean, that's at the heart of all of this, right? Chaotic use or not, like we're always looking for connection and love.
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's why you're doing this, right? It's like you're recording these podcast episodes because like, you know, okay, this is where it gets really spiritual for me. Mm -hmm. So Sufism. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell me about it. uh, okay Sufism has been really validating for the way that I experience the world and it comes down to this place of like there is a yearning for the divine
0: Mm -hmm. right
1: a constant state of yearning this like longing for the relationship with use any word use any word it could be God if you're comfortable with that if it's not God that's okay it can be nature it can be the divine spirit Mm -hmm. it's it's there is a tether that we feel into energetically and we're all in relationship with it you know we're all in relationship with it no matter and people have tons of spiritual trauma but there's something there and it, it shapes itself it projects itself into our dynamics with people we mm-hmm. yearn for other people because we want that connection. They help us feel closer to the divine. We yearn for like a, a different life. We know that we were designed to float down a river eating berries in the sun with our lover and instead we're going to work 40 hours a week.
0: Oh yeah. When I hear about the Sunday scaries, I'm like, that's your hmm. innate
1: wisdom saying that capitalism is <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> like- exactly, exactly, exactly. And because in capitalism, we don't have this space. Again, the spiritual center has been lost. And we now have to go to these institutions. I have to get in my box and go to the box to work. You know, I'm supposed to be like sauntering with my lover into a place of ritual. (laughs) And what Sufism has offered me is just like a way to honor and then speak to and help people understand that place of yearning, that the yearning itself is, is it you know the longing for the divine is the divine and i don't really know how we got on that but like yeah it was brat park yeah it was like just like that if we had framework for what we were experiencing and knew how to talk about that and knew that like gosh look at how perfect all of these things that we struggle with are just perfect remedies for the absence of the divine when we feel that way alcohol oh my god what a remedy you know, spirits, right? Drugs, connection. It's the tether. Other people, the relationships, the 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 chaotic relationships we end in, end up in, you know, toxic relationships. Like it's like, oh my God, we're just feeling close, you
0: know? Mm-hmm. Unity. Yeah. Claving that intimacy, that interconnection, that unity, the oneness, all of those pieces. Oh. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so that's why I love the metaphor of the arrow. Yeah, that is so 100%. I feel like what my work is too is that, you know, Taylor Swift with that song came out. (laughs) Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. And I'm like, okay, maybe, but like larger systems perspective, it's like not you, but you at the same time. Like, you know what I mean? So like, (laughs) I'll write her a letter. I'll write her a letter and tell her. (laughs) (laughs) I'll sign off. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. But like 100%. Right? every single client is like, it's wrong, I'm me, something's wrong with me. And part of that is the system of psychology, right? Here's the diagnosis, here's you, et cetera, et cetera. But like when we take these larger approaches, one of my favorite questions to ask clients too is like, where did you first hear that?
1: Where did you first hear that you were
0: bad? Was it your parents, your friends? Was it God? Because that's a big one for a lot of people that God told us we were bad, right? Like what relationship created this because in my belief I don't think that we're innately
1: born with that negative self totally yeah Absolutely. oh I love that question where did you first get that um and you're just zooming out more and more and yeah. more and you're seeing who's responsible for those voices because it's like god I love I love the topic of like spiritual um like trauma and mm-hmm. like trauma. so who's god's voice yeah. who gave the voice
0: mm-hmm. you know
1: because like let's just look at that it was really colonial <laughs> yeah (laughs) like the most you you mean the like christian colonizing god that's like brutal Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah these are those are great Mm -hmm. absolutely and so then
0: being able to have that and ask them that next question too of like once you realize that and have that like that mindfulness almost right to like notice like oh here's that thought coming in of like okay that's not from my value system right then that next step of what narrative what value system do you want to work from right Mm -hmm. like what is yours what do you want to
1: create in this world yeah that's awesome that's another part of like sufism within therapy which i'm like Mm -hmm. i actually this is such a helpful conversation because i'm like i want to like write this day. we need you (laughs) (laughs) it's like so it's like you're like where really it feels like one of the tasks is to empty the channel Mm -hmm. you know Like that spiritual, like, who is God? Who are the voices? Who? Where is this coming from? Capitalism, colonialism, it's like muddy, mucky. Mm -hmm. mucky. And purification of the heart is the task, right? Like so much clarity, so much so that when your most, your highest self, your like truest self, your authentic, genuine essence, it's just moving through. Then you're not doing anything. You're not doing anything you don't have to try anymore you get to sleep rest now you know and so then therapists get to do that for people like help people clear that channel mm. oh there's so much in there yeah yeah absolutely
0: and i think one of the big things i'm always thinking about too is like relationships even in the meta level right like again mm-hmm. if you are listening to taylor swift <laughs> and that song gets internalized in your head and then you're mm-hmm. moving through the world saying i'm the problem it's me you know like I- the ways that the music we listen to, the movies we listen to, the books we're reading, all of that gets internalized. They're all relationships. A human created that narrative that you are listening to and is now on loop in your brain. Like, I think it's important when we're thinking about like, you know, trying to take the mud out of the water so we can drink some fresh water here. You gotta be looking at it like, what songs am I listening to and how are they depicting me
1: or my friends and other things? Wow, I love that. You know what? One thing is a shout out to my partner, who's a wizard, a magician, <laughs> literally. Yeah, um, is uh, they always use the word impressions, and I think mm-hmm. that that's very wise. It's like like they were talking about babies yesterday, and yeah. um, how they're like, when I was, I had this chance to be with my friend's baby, twenty twenty, early COVID. I, I was like, okay, I have like 20 minutes alone with this infant. What mm-hmm. impressions do I want to make on them? They'll say like, well, I, I'm wanting to be careful about the impressions coming into my mind. So it's like this Taylor Swift example is like, you know, yes, engage with the media. Sure. Have, do whatever you want. Like, it's interesting. We have we have an abundance of, of like stimuli. It's a delicious stimuli. And also you are co-created by everything that you're in relationship with. You're, mm-hmm. You are- If it comes in, how do you cleanse it? What are your rituals for cleansing it? What is your, like, what's the magic relationship of, like, of the, what's the alchemical transmutational process? Everything that you're allowing in, what are your boundaries for what you allow Mm -hmm. in? For me, and even thinking about like boundaries, right? Of what impressions, like
0: I stopped watching horror films.
1: Yes, the horror films are a perfect example, me too. No
0: more, no more. I play with fear and, and pain in a very consensual way with my partners, but yeah, I don't need to watch. I don't need to watch this on a movie, you know, where like my brain literally cannot tell the difference between reality or fiction right hence why I'm having this somatic response of oh my god you know my heart rate's starting to race all that sort of stuff but then like I carry that in my body Mm -hmm. you know as if it happened to a degree and so I was just like why am I putting myself through this like oh
1: so good I mean it's like it it, (laughs) that is it's so funny that it's like I feel like I just very recently made that decision too or I'm like we're done with the, with the horror films. We can't do this anymore. Um, those impressions, we know that this works because I'm just thinking of like IFS therapy is getting That's a true. lot of yeah. like support right now, which is, it's great. We love it. Also it's parts work. We've been doing this for centuries, but <laughs> yes, <laughs> somebody had to put their name on it. So, you know, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, and I went through IFS therapy, so I love it. Mm-hmm. But like one of the things that works about it is because of that same shaping, you the impressions, your, your body doesn't know the difference when you're receiving the imagery, your body doesn't know that it's not happening. So when my therapist had me walk through my childhood as the oldest version of myself to go hug that little girl, mm-hmm. I didn't know the difference between that and reality, and I felt her hold mm-hmm. me. you know. Mm-hmm. And so we spend our re- weekly ritual in therapy, being in relationship with somebody who loves us, loves us, we that's the impression. And we start like expanding that like mm-hmm. we know that this is true.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. I'm curious too, like, if we're gonna dream together, like, I've been thinking a lot because that's part of the activism movement, right? Mm -hmm. The vibration I want to stay in is like dreaming of the new world, right? And what sort of world could we frame these, the struggles that we experience outside of a DSM framework? Some things I've been thinking about, right, are like relational patterns, obviously, the ways that that creates the dynamics where we want to show up, right? Mm -hmm. Or or at least my framework from relational cultural theory would, would say that all of our diagnosis come from that, right? Is that we learn how to be in relationship with other people. We're always trying to maintain that. And when there's something that can threaten that, then we either put it into the relationship and face that threat of disconnection, or we try and clamp it back inward, right? Like I can't talk about my use of heroin, right? That needs to go inward and then we're disconnected and then we're alone. And then all of the struggles that come from isolation, right? And then also the larger systems and how that affect us. So I think like part of one way we could look at these diagnoses are like, yeah, what sort of relational patterns were created? Mm -hmm. And then also the ways that, you know, those relationships, like we were saying earlier, right? The systems, right? Those messages get internalized. So that's a relationship too, right? So we're examining Mm -hmm. what sort of societal messages are existing inside our relationships. And then also like a somatic approach, right? What sort of body experience are we feeling in this world? Cause that's half of the, equation. It's just hilarious to me that like, there's no training of somatic work in my education at all. But, but no, yeah, not at all. But I'll be in like a neuro class and we'll be like, oh, or, you know, like this is going on. And then physiologically, we're having cortisol in the body and adrenaline's going and I'm like, okay, so we recognize that these things create a response in the body but we don't think at all about like how to work with that like okay dinosaurs it's fine we'll get we'll get there we'll get there one day in the apa training it's okay so i am i know i know so i'm just curious like that's kind of how i'm thinking about it is like like mm-hmm. a body perspective somatic responses and the relational traumas to systems people spiritual powers mm-hmm. etc but like is there anything else you'd think of like how we could conceptualize these instead of the dsm that's so good
1: that is so good I love your brain
0: (laughs) I am in school and I'm going through my hazing right now so I can actively speak to the hazing okay
1: totally totally I can hear you're just like I want to shake the baby I I do I do
0: (laughs) I told my friends I was like I want to dismantle this system but if I can't dismantle I'm going to put a mother big dent in there a real big dent (laughs)
1: I would always say, um, like, and, and I like a lot of my clients actually end up doing this thing where they're like, oh, I think I want to become a therapist. And I'm like, okay, let's yeah, do exactly. it. <laughs> like, not <be> careful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and what I'll recommend when they start going through the process is like you need to come at it as if you're entering the belly of the beast. Yes. You are taking that arrow and you are destroying it from the inside out but you can't do any other shape. Like, it's like, you have to know that that's happening, but I love this. I love your, your concept here about this relational pattern. It goes back to that tether and it goes back to the reason why we have to do this in a non-traditional decolonial way. Mm-hmm. Is that like the, like it's, it's I sweet, see it as the invisible thread. It's almost like that channel that's open that we work on purifying yeah. is it's white it's empty it's the emptiness we learn this from like buddhist psychology the emptiness and then it's outwards it's almost like imagining we have tethers towards everything and again it's to our heart. so it's first in relationship to ourselves and then it's in relationship to everything to our body mm-hmm. and to like all the, the 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 epinephrine and the the like um stress hormone running through yeah and it's in relationship to our people it's in relationship to our culture our systems, and. Everything like I love this, like the DSM being like just showing how like what our relational patterns are. It's like how do we gain the capacity? The word tolerate has been coming up for me a lot in my sessions with clients, right? Because it's like I feel like the work that we're doing is expanding somebody's ability to tolerate what is happening in that relational tether, right? If I'm in a, a I, I'm I'm anxious with my partner, and I'm tantruming, mm-hmm. right? Or like my I'm my partner is is like uh, causing a like sort of I feel like there's a stir sort of occurring mm-hmm. and becoming dysregulated. How do I work with that person and expanding their capacity to tolerate what's happening for them, so that they can read into like what cues, what signals? The body is so intelligent. Our emotional system, feelings are they're like their own spirits. They come in, you know, like the bioacumulafé quote. Emotion is not ours. It's not a brain phenomenon. It's a territorial phenomenon mm. and it enlists bodies and how it comes into matter. Okay. So good. I'm gonna read it one more time. Emotion is not ours. It's not a brain phenomenon. It's a territorial phenomenon and it enlists bodies and how it comes to matter. Mm. Bio so that like what that is suggesting, it's not singular, it's not like it's not this individualist thing that comes from colonialism and capitalism, but it's rather a relational ecosystem like where it, it's existing outside of us because it's in everything. I mean, it's in everything. I'm pretty sure I got this jar that I'm drinking from. I stole this from my brother's house. You see what I mean? Yeah. So I'm in relationship to it because Mm -hmm. when I grab it out of the out of the cupboard I'm like he 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 took that from Gabe (laughs) you know yes and and there's a feeling that comes from that whereas if the the stuff that I had that's still my ex's, I'm like I don't see what I so it's like and all of that emotion is existing we are responsible for like knowing what's happening for us, not projecting and bleeding that out on the people that we love, like a lot of us do. And instead being like, what can I do to tolerate this? How can I work with a therapist, work with a healer, work with whoever mm. to just be like, what what's happening for me?
0: Totally, mm. totally. That was making me think about non-monogamy in terms of non-monogamy. And when you were talking about like the connections to the outside world, at least for me, one of the biggest things I've realized is like, you know, the ways that the internalized systems of capitalism and other things like have created the scarcity mindset right that like deeply affects Mm -hmm. the way when i'm trying to secure a partner Mm -hmm. right and then that potential that they leave me or spread their resources out right the ways that that internalized like scarcity Mm -hmm. mindset shows Mm -hmm. up into my relationships you know Uh and i mean i think that's a really big thing to think about too is just the way that our culture has been so constructed and how that then affects our ability to love right and and think about love in more expansive ways it's, mm. it's part of what I'm really passionate about
1: oh that's so good I feel like doing therapy like being a therapist has prepared me for like ENM, like skill and ENM shapings because 100%. I'm like 100%
0: right <laughs> there's a large amount of therapists I know in my not yeah ethical yeah. non-monogamy communities <laughs> I'm just going to throw out there might be some correlation oh. <laughs> to That's the true. ability
1: to process emotions and communicate uh-huh. and communicate and, and like literally feel into the reality where I'm like, wait, wait, what? I have what? 30 clients. Loving is an act and it is infinite. It is mm-hmm. the infinite resource. Capitalism does not want you to find out, you know, and it's, or is actively trying to get that out of you. So it's like, yeah, I'm like,
0: we expand. Totally. And when when time and energy is not infinite, right? Like that's the limitations of love being infinite, but time and energy is not infinite. And then when you're working a nine to five job Monday through Friday, and you don't have the capacity because you're trying to survive, then like, of course, you're not going to have time for multiple partners, right? Like Uh that's how the system is affecting our ability to love on very deep ways. When you're exhausted after your job and you don't have space to go on a date, right? Like these.
1: Oh, true. They're all up in there oh my god that's that's so it I just saw that meme that was like poly breakups be like oh no what am I gonna do on Thursday nights now because <laughs> <You know? laughs> like oh that's the schedule and it's like yeah we're 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 confined to scheduling these things mm-hmm. you know it's just scheduling love to put putting love in time but time doesn't even exist
0: yeah yeah you know?
1: totally mm-hmm. totally mm-hmm. and I this is a little bit more sad realities and
0: and pieces I think that are important to talk about like I'm in the supervision class and my professor came in talking about her one of her supervision sites during her training she had just gotten there and they found out that one of the psychiatrists was sleeping with this client multiple clients and this client yeah huge huge story apparently the whole office knew he never got fired he was sleeping with a client who had a sexual abuse history oh, and man. they never oh. fired him because he apparently had a family and kids right so like
1: this whole like oh, oh, oh. Oh, this is so important to talk about because this so when when we talk about the really rigid therapeutic boundaries that exist i'm glad they exist they are created for the lowest common denominator that's what that's what's going on here is that like yeah we're, we're, we made these boundaries that are like, um, can't, don't have a relationship with your client outside of, outside mm-hmm. of therapy, which I think is good. You know, like, especially like I always tell my clients, there will never be sexual energy here. Yeah. Never. We will, we do not chase that you're allowed to have a, a transference and we work with that. And I invite sure. you to talk to me about it, but like, it will never be chased, mm-hmm. you know? And, but like what, what that, that rule has to exist because I mean, honestly, hot take, it's like, we can't trust that like people who are sitting in that position of power know what to do with their,
0: like, that's exactly what you
1: mean. Like, so then we're like, Hey, just don't even like, you just, you need the very simple ABC, no sexuality and therapy because you don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is also why I'm like, it feels so silly to me so silly that people can get it this is oh this is so brutal but like people can get a license to become a therapist or psychologist Mm -hmm. without ever having been been in therapy oh yeah it's upset That's insane to me Mm -hmm. and it used to be counted towards your hours and they just changed it so you can't have it it's not counted towards your hours and it's like that's the whole point and that feels very much so like one of those like this is the system is not broken it's 100% calculated and oppressive they Mm -hmm. took that out for a reason you know and it's like yeah The most important thing you can do if you are in a position of power and you're holding somebody is like, go do your work and look at those parts. Absolutely. That's so terrible.
0: I loved how you named it. It's that the clinician doesn't know what to do with that Mm -hmm. energy, right? And I Mm -hmm. think that for me, as I was thinking about this in the last couple of days, I was just thinking about how, you know, before I started practicing ethical non-monogamy or even thinking that that world existed and that you could do that ethically. Right. When I was in a monogamous framework, I would have kind of came in with this like moral model of this (laughs) issue. Right. And been like, that man is so problematic in his things. It's so bad. He's so bad where I'm kind of sitting with this now and I'm like, what would it look like for that clinician that was causing all of that harm to step into a framework of ethical non-monogamy where you had your wife and kids and you were able to discuss that you have sexual needs that need to be met outside of that framework. Great. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that you can play with power consensually. With people who can consent to that and you can play with that power, sir, not abusing clients that can't consent to that like that is 100% why i'm so passionate about talking about sex and kink and things these ways. That people are always playing with power fucking always playing with power, but it's a question of are you doing it consciously or not.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. And
0: so like part of dismantling rape culture, I think is talking about the fact that people have needs beyond a monogamous marriage that they're trying to meet. They have these desires and needs to play with power and the, the, the joy that that is, but let's
1: do it in a consensual framework folks. Like, oh my God, it's really not that complicated. It's really not that. And again, it comes down to the, like, can, do we have the capacity to hold the complexity and the nuance of the people that we love or just people in general. It's like like I think of like queerness, right? It's like what oh really most most of us are not straight. So also another one of my hot takes is that like what is that? I know <laughs> And, and so it's like if the average person is on this like wide spectrum of sexuality, it's unrealistic that you know I think like I'll just speak to my brothers out, so I'll just like talk about like, you know, his experience with being like a bi man, mm-hmm. you know. And, like, his beautiful partnership where it's, like, they, you know, he, he feels so fulfilled by the, like, she understands, his, his mother of his children understands yeah. that, like, he's going to need different shapings of different bodies in order to fully embrace who he is as a person. Yeah. And it's just so beautiful to me that that's, like, oh, my, I, I, I God, I just, I love, I like love that that's there. Then it doesn't get rejected, like my mother. It doesn't become this thing where it's, like, shame, shame, shame. Yeah hide nobody could find out they're gonna think that you know for my brother it's like he's not a good father that he's not committed to his his, his (sighs) wife like are you kidding me like yeah not be more devoted to her yeah
0: you know of course course. gosh Mm -hmm. i know it's so simple so simple (laughs) Yeah. but it's changing the paradigms around it stepping into that more expansive relating what is the glorious dynam quote the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off, right? The second you're starting to like expand your brain, you know, you're having that psychedelic experience, the walls are bending, you know, where is reality? It's a lot to process. But once you get to like seeing it through that lens, it's like, yeah, of course he's a loving father. My God, why, why would we think anything else? But it was that deconstruction process to get there, you know?
1: It's, oh, I love that. The truthful fit will set you free, but first it'll piss you off. I know, but it's true, no. right? That's True, but then that goes to the like all these proud boys, all these like Trump kids who like don't know what to do with their anger.
0: There's a lot of repression going on, right? What There's the a repression? lot of repression going on it's all about creating more space right like all of those desires looking for connection right and like when you are needing that in a group and falling into these radical ones like we can understand that right but like yeah often there's so much so much repression going on in those and like at least for me I I've talked a lot about on the podcast like growing up very conservative Christian and how I would condemn homosexuals and then found out I was one later it's so fascinating why that uh-huh. particular <laughs> issue was so charged for me I wonder why <laughs> Know what i mean so i wonder, then, why. I wonder yeah. why so when these people are getting so enraged i'm like interesting like what is this bringing up in you like what is that bringing up in you that's hard to sit and with it,
1: that's the internalize the therapist thing it's like you when we go to therapy we internalize that specific voice that says hmm it's curiosity like well, i wonder what what this is about what is this bringing mm-hmm. up in why is that emotion like what's what am i what is this pointing to But, like, you don't get access to that narrative until you meet somebody who gives it to you, Mm -hmm. you know? And then you're like, oh, I'm allowed to be like, huh, curious and not judgmental and compassionate about what I'm experiencing. You know? Exactly. Unwrap it like a little gift. Unwrap Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, surprise, you're queer and it's awesome. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Best gift ever. Thank you. Yeah,
0: totally, totally, totally. Right. I'm always working with clients who are like processing, you know, the fear of stepping out and being out about their identity. It's right. And then I hear that like, oh yeah, their family's deeply homophobic, right? And it's like the way that these systems, the relationships get internalized, right? And then that client's like, I'm so anxious, something's wrong with me. I'm ruminating, oh my God. And I'm like, no, you are in a system where these people will not accept you. It's like, you know, again, that arrow, where are we pointing that arrow? And like a a lot of what we've been talking about today is bringing more curiosity, right, to examine the narratives of these systems that we've internalized that are causing us, our people, harm, and where do we need to change that arrow towards and work collectively towards
1: dismantling
0: or putting a huge
1: dent, at least while we're here, right? Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love that we're talking like it's modern anarchy, right? So it's like in the same way that we were talking about the anger, like we have this like very righteous, like very like um valid anger towards these systems, you know? And like, we need to be fuck you. What the fuck did you do to us? Like, it's yeah. not our fault. You did this and then be in relationship to where it's like, okay. And yet love and yet love is going to heal, you know, like how we are in relationship to each other and love each other is going to be the radical way that we do this. Absolutely. Way. You know, that's what I'm going to offer, offer like, you know, I've been in like political movements for how long now? And like the thing that I would offer all my like, sweet, overstimulated anarchist friends is like, <laughs> <laughs> You know us, you know right. us, we think too much. <laughs> just like, let me hold you. Aww. Let's regulate our nervous systems and our hearts together and just, and and like recognize that like, I I absolutely still want to like fucking destroy, but destroying comes from love, you know? And, And it's because we know the disappointment in how things are going. This is another one of my favorite things that I'm like, like when you're disappointed about anything, about the system, let's use that example. It's pointing to this place of like, I know that I'm worthy and deserving of something different here. The way that I'm supposed to be in relationship to this should be different. I'm worthy of that. And so- let's take that. Let's claim that part. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. You'd love the
0: episode that I did with, um, Elmo painter, who's a somatic therapist. And we were talking about play as rebellion. Right. And like, when you're Mm -hmm. an activist, so much fire and rage and also play and needing that balance to like, feel the long-term revolution, you know? So
1: yeah. yeah, Adrian Marie Brown and Trisha Hersey, like have been like, they're on my little educator's altar of like, You know, they're like they're like, hey, we need to like rest. Our rest is radical and our pleasure and our play is radical. You know? I want that more for like all the like exhausted, burnt out BIPOC, you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. than their labor, you know? Like sit down. You know? (laughs)
0: Absolutely. Let me me massage your feet, please. You know, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, this has been so lovely. I wanna Hold a little bit of space as we come towards the end of our time. If there's any last words you wanted to say to the listeners. Otherwise, I do have a closing question and then I'll also create space for you to plug anywhere that you would like to link for yourself and your communities.
1: No, I think, I think we have well rounded it up. Let's do your last question.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. So the question I ask every guest is what is one thing that you wish other people knew was more normal? Hmm.
1: No, let's use the, the Rorschach response. It's going to be like the the intensity that you love is not a mistake. Mm-hmm. The intensity that you're feeling things is not a mistake. We're doing so much to numb and to point that arrow and say that like, I'm feeling a lot either in the realms of ecstasy or the realms of agony. And I'm, I'm convinced that like, it shouldn't be this much. You're not going to be annihilated. You're not going to die if you feel it you have the tools and if you work with the like relational tethers of all the, 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 everything that you're in relationship with, they, they will, they will nourish you. They will give you material like to, to have the capacity to tolerate. So I think, I think there's that, you know. Mm -hmm.
0: Absolutely. So, so necessary. And, you've shared so much wisdom. And I just want to thank you again for sharing your story, for trusting me and sharing that with all of the listeners here and all the powerful work that you're doing. You know, I I believe deeply in the ripples of the work that we do.
1: Totally. Thank you for the opportunity. I mean, like, this is like, yeah, this is us doing that specific. These are acts of loving. So I'm, yeah, super grateful for you. And like,
0: and i'm glad that you get the modern anarchy i think there's a lot of power that we need to dismantle and the way is love right Mm -hmm.
1: oh my god i love it
0: (laughs) is there anywhere you'd like to plug for your work people to connect with you
1: sure 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 so um if you ever want to connect with me my website is herrera psychotherapy.com you could like reach out there or herrera psychotherapy at gmail um Plug wise, Alchemy Community Therapy Center. Alchemy Community, it's Sauna Healing Collective's basically sibling.
0: Yeah, <laughs> so, that's where I'm training at, listeners. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, you know, Alchemy is providing like ketamine therapy for like the lowest possible fees, but it's a nonprofit and it struggles a lot financially. And I've been with it since its beginning. You know, and uh, just shout out to Irina Alexander, who's like kind of holding down the fort there as the last standing founder, putting a lot of her own money into it, honestly, we we do a lot of that. Um, And dear listener,
0: if you if you haven't heard Irina's episode, we go into a lot of harm reduction philosophies there.
1: Well, so she's my best friend.
0: (laughs) The community,
1: (laughs) actually, like Like we graduated together. We live next to each other. We're yeah. So um, our philosophies. She gets all the things. Um, Yes, and alchemy money, um, and yeah, just that's 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 pretty much it.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Nicole.
0: This is so much fun. Good. I'm glad. I mean, I find this so fun. (laughs) If you enjoyed today's episode, then leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast and head on over to modernanarchypodcast.com to get resources and learn more about all the things we talked about on today's episode. I want to thank you for tuning in and I will see you all next week.